Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Amen. So good morning. I would introduce myself before. Let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City Church. It's good to see uh, so many of you this morning. We continue in a series that we've been doing for quite uh, some time now that we will continue all the way until the end of school for, for the whole spring. Uh, and it's in the, bu- the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. That's a high watermark of our, of our scriptures, probably the clearest articulation of the gospel. Romans really is Paul's gospel, and the gospel really is grace. It is the good news that, uh, to borrow Philip Yancey's definition, that there is nothing we can do to make God love us anymore, no amount of spiritual calisthenics or renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes, and there's nothing that we can do to make him love us any less, no amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder, all because of Christ. That's what Paul has been laboring to reveal. If you go all the way back, it really would be helpful to have a Bible because you can turn back and forth some, but if you go all the way back to the very beginning of Romans chapter 1, you'll see in verses 16 and 17, Paul says that the gospel, in the gospel, something's being revealed. The gospel is revelation. It's unlike every other religion in the world because it is the anti-religion. Religion says, do this, and then God will love you. Christianity says, no, God loves you in spite of yourself, grace. Now, in in light of that, go and, and do this. And that is where we have been. That is what we've been laboring to, to study together. Because as uh, Martin Luther said, we need to, the gospel is such, uh, well, his people would ask him, you preach the gospel to us every week. Why do you do that? Why can't we move on to something else? He says, because every week you come in looking like a people who don't believe it to be true, and I have to reconvince you. And so he says it's this article of faith that we must continually go back to and beat into one another's heads. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to beat the gospel into your head until I believe it and until you believe it. But here we're turning the corner into something more. Paul begins, he continues this theme of grace, but he begins to talk about grace in a very different way. In a way you don't normally hear, not even in what we might call gospel churches. And we're going to learn a whole lot. And this is really, I wish, I, I really try to make these sermons what I would call like one-off sermons, but really we're going to have to build week to week. And so I'm, there's a lot that I want to say this morning I'm not going to be able to say, and that's frustrating to me. But come back and we'll kind of build on, on where Paul's taking us from week to week as we go throughout the next few weeks. But grace 
Paul begins to talk about is something more than a doctrine to believe. If you notice the language here, and that's going to become really important to us today, grace is described by Paul here as a realm, as a kingdom, as a sovereign, a reigning power. So look at verse 21 again. He says, as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So he's saying just as before sin reigned, now grace has come to reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. And really that phrase, we want to just look very, very closely at that phrase this morning is really what we're going to do. Now the noun form of that verb that's, that's used there to both describe sin and death and grace is the word king. And so the verb means to be kingly or to exercise kingly or government, governmental authority. And so uh, when Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 2, that we, through Jesus, have obtained access into this grace in which we stand, he means something more than we've just come to a certain doctrinal position. He, he means that we, we have immigrated into grace. We've, we've got our paperwork in order and we've become a part of a new country. That's what it means to be a Christian, to transfer your citizenship from one realm or kingdom to another. Uh, we've immigrated into grace is what Paul means. We now live in grace. And so uh, grace is not a sentiment. To be a person, the way we use the word, we use it wrongly a lot of the time. To be a person of grace doesn't mean, you know, you're just sweet and you're always nice and you always have encouraging things to say. And it's like your words are like a Hallmark card that just flows out of your mouth constantly. Grace, we're told here, reigns. Grace reigns. It is a strong and powerful influence that conquers and subdues. So you don't just believe grace, you obey grace. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has a, has a he's the preacher in London in, in the early the mid-20th century. It's a helpful analogy. He says, he says uh, grace reigns means that grace is holding the reins. Because reign is not R-A-I-N, it's R-E-I-G-N. Grace reigning means literally that grace holds the reins. Whatever's reigning over you is what, what's holding the reins of your life. So what's holding the reins of your life? What's, what's driving you? What, what is the deep motivational core of your life? Is it guilt? Is it fear of death? Or is it joy and freedom and gratitude? Because those are very different things. Paul says grace is now reigning, but the question is, does it reign in you? And that's really the question before us this morning as we use this passage to examine our own lives. Grace is reigning, but does it reign in me? And here's what I want to do. Three points, as usual, this morning. I want you to see uh, these three things. We're going to talk about this theme along these three lines. First, we want to, we want to look at the text and, and discover why grace must reign. Uh, secondly, how the reign of grace comes, how it comes into the heart, how it is that you really, grace can really begin to reign in you. And then thirdly, as it comes, what the reign of grace would look like in a person's life. In other words, what does a life of, of uh, grace reigning in the heart really begin, what shape does it begin to take? So why and how and what as it regards this, uh, this image of the reign of grace that Paul gives to us? So let's just begin together, if you would walk with me, and first ask why, why grace must come and reign. Why does Paul talk about grace this way? Well, the reign of grace doesn't just happen in a vacuum. 
It is the result of a conflict. This is really, this language here is language of conflict. Grace must reign because we're told sin and death are reigning. And grace comes to overthrow the tyranny of sin and death. Now let's trace this out in the text. So look up at verse 17. And in verse 17, you'll see Paul begins, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So death came into the world, we're told. Paul's already said this in Romans 5. Jonathan talked about this last week. Death came into the world through Adam's sin. But more than that, death didn't just make its presence known in the world. Death came into the world conquering. Death began to reign. Death set up a throne, Paul says. That's the image. Well, it's the same in verse 21. If you go down there, we're told this little phrase there, Paul says, sin reigned in death. So here it's sin that is reigning. Here it's sin that is the governmental power over the world, spreading death through the whole world, death being the tool of this cruel tyrant sin. So is it sin or is it death? See, that's not the point. As Jonathan talked about last week, the two go together. Wherever there is sin, there is death and vice versa. So we could call it the reign of sin and death. The reign of sin and death. Now, both the imagery and the grammar in the passage are important. So look at the imagery with me first. Uh, if you, I w- you know, again, I didn't print all of this all the way back to verse 12, but if you have a Bible and you want to look all the way back to verse 12, you'll see uh, that Paul says there, as he begins to set up this whole section of Romans 5, he says, sin came into the world and death, spread, and death through sin, and so death spread to all. Death spread to all. So there's a couple of metaphors we could use to kind of describe that. You, you could say Paul imagines sin as a, as a contagion, infecting the whole world. I, I, I run at Gold's in the Cardio Cinema, which is the greatest invention since sliced bread, because you can just get lost in the movie and forget that you're running, and it's marvelous. But uh, the whole Planet of the Apes movie was showing the other day, right? And there's this scene at the very end where a guy's infected by the simian flu, and then the credits roll, and as the credits roll, it shows the flight he gets on, and then... As he, and then of course, this contagion just starts to spread until the whole world is covered. This apocalyptic, you know, thing. And in many ways, that is what Paul's saying. Sin is a contagion, it's, it has infected the whole world. Or you could use another metaphor. You could say that what this death spread to all sin, uh, along with its weapon death, is an annihilating army forcefully advancing across the world like Alexander the Great. So that's the imagery. The world has succumbed to sin and death, and they are reigning. But then there's the grammar also. And by grammar, I mean that if you look in these verses, you don't really see it in the English, but in the original language, both sin and death are personified. So it literally, verse 21 would read, the sin reigned through the death, or the sin reigned in the death. Because we're, we're being told here that they are reigning powers. They are monarchs. Sin is more than just an act. It is a condition. It is an estate. That's the word our catechism uses, I think, wisely. Because if you look up the definition of of an estate in the dictionary, it refers to a large tract of land with a large main house. Which, of course, calls to mind the images of slavery. And that's just the point. Sin... Fleming Rutledge says, it's not something we commit, it is something we are in. It's not just something we commit, it's something we're in. We belong to the kingdom of sin and death, enslaved to their powerful tyranny. Now, let me just draw out a few implications from this teaching. 
uh, just, just what Paul's teaching us here. And, and the first is this, is that Western Christianity in the 21st century is far too sentimental and naive. We don't think of sin this way. We don't think about it this way because we don't talk about it like this. And we don't talk about it like this because Christianity is full of sentimentalism. Hallmark card Christianity. And it's a lie. And it's the enemy of true Christianity. Flannery O'Connor said that sentimentalism is arriving early at the happily ever after without going through the process of fallen redemption. She said it's, it's, uh, it's wanting all of the promises of the Bible without any of the pain and the struggle the Bible also promises. It sets people up with false expectations. But the Bible, if you've read it, you know it's hardly sentimental. It is not a collection of inspirational stories. It is full of X-rated tales of every conceivable kind of crime and villainy from beginning to end. It's, I mean, it's really bad. Right? It's really bad. Because that's how life is. Now, there is a happy ending. But not without a rescue. Not without having to walk through the struggle. And we do well to remember C.S. Lewis, who said that the world is enemy-occupied territory, and we are the insurgency. There is no Christianity that is not wartime Christianity. And that brings me to the second... There we go. Oh, I thought I went out there. That brings me to the second implication, which is uh, that we often don't have the right view of what a desperate condition we're in. We don't see ourselves rightly. Uh, We tend to think that we just need some tinkering. At least the people that end up in my office, they, they end up in my office because they think I just need to help them with a few things, right? But for the most part, we're good. Just tinker around a bit. I'm good. I don't want to change things too much. Just a a little remodel in the kitchen, maybe. As a result, we don't go deep enough. We focus, we tend to focus on external behaviors where, whereas the reign of sin and death is really seen in the subterranean parts of our lives. And let me just quote here from Fleming Rutledge, who says, the unconscious impulses and drives that shape our personalities in harmful ways, making us Perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics. Not specific, discreet actions willfully committed, but she says, compulsions over which we have little or no control. And it's really that last line uh, where she says, uh, in truth, we are powerless against sin. Paul's going to go on to say, and we'll see this in a few weeks, he says in chapter 7, the good that I want to do, what? I can't figure out how to do it. And the things that I know are killing me, the bad stuff that I know is killing me, and it's just destroying the people I love, I can't seem to stop doing those things. Paul says this is the condition of humanity, that there are out-of-control desires and impulses and instincts that shape our behavior and decision-making, and for the most part, we can't change. We need to be changed. Most of the verbs, particularly in Romans, that talk about transformation in the life of a Christian are passive verbs. They're passive verbs. It's something God must come and do. Because we are under the influence of powers that we do not have the strength to match up against. And God must come. But So we, don't, we often don't view ourselves in what, a real, what the really desperate condition we're in. But the third thing is, is that then we also, thirdly, don't see others rightly too. And let me just say to you, the problem with people 
Particularly, I want to just go after where the people in your life that really annoy you. The problem with the people that really annoy you is not that they do bad things. The problem is they're prisoners. They're slaves to sin and death. And that's why it doesn't do to just get outraged when people do dumb things. We ought to never be outraged at people doing dumb things. We ought to have compassion. See, you can't say when you're aggravated with someone, they just need to get their act together. That's, a really, that's just a really shallow understanding of sin. Maybe they can't get their act together. Maybe they've tried over and over again, and they're exhausted, and they don't know what else to do, or worse, maybe they don't even know they need to get their act together. Maybe they're that far gone. So what we learn here is sin is more than doing dumb things. It's not being able to stop doing dumb things because we're not free. We're not in control. We're being lorded over by sin and death. So let me just say, can we just say we're going to be patient and kind with one another, with people? I mean, if you really understand sin, you'll look at the people in your life, particularly the ones that annoy you the most, the way Jesus did, not as a nuisance, but as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, because they're under the power of sin and death. Uh, the wise preacher in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead puts it this way. He's, uh, the preacher says, There is a wound in the flesh of human life that scars when it heals, and often enough it never seems to heal at all. Now, the imagery really hits home with me there, I'll be honest. The preacher says there are two options. You can go through life with a scar, or you can go through life with an open wound, and both are hard, both are painful, nobody is whole. We're all wounded. It is untrue to human nature to think of sin in terms of individual avoidable acts or failures to act. Sin is a mortal wound that only God can heal. And even when he does, it's a very painful thing, and we carry the scars of that healing around for the rest of our lives. So that's sin. Well, then what is salvation? Well, if sin is a condition, then salvation is much more than just forgiveness. Salvation is a rescue. Sin and death must be overthrown by a superior power, and that's exactly what Romans 5 is about. In Christ, grace, capital G, when every time I say grace from now on, think capital G, grace has come to overthrow sin and death and reign in their place. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Oh, do you read that and just say, amen. Let that be. Grace is now reigning, just as sin and death were, but is it reigning in you? And so secondly, we come to then, well, how then does grace come to reign? Look there at verse 21, how does grace come? It says, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, what's the next two words? Through righteousness. So the reign of grace is through righteousness, by being right, rightly related to the God of righteousness. And here we're back to the heart of what Paul's been laboring to teach us. How can you be right with God? Right, that's the question that you have to answer. That is the question that humanity must wrestle with. And Paul's answer here in chapter 5 is you have to be in Christ. That's what all of this is about here beginning in verse 12. But if you look back at verse 20, you'll notice that he brings the law back up again for some reason. So he's going along and he's talking about uh, the comparison between Adam and Christ. And then in verse 20, he starts to say, now the law came in and you read that. And it almost seems forced. It seems like, you know, he's going right along, and then, and then he says this, and you wonder, what now what's Paul getting at here? And Paul does this because there were those who were reading his letter, both then and now, 
Who would say something like this? Well, yeah, there, there's Adam and there's Christ, but don't forget, there's also Moses. Let's don't forget about him. He gave us the law, and it's by obeying the law. It's by following all the rules. It's by working really hard and being a good moral person. That's how, it's, it's by doing that. That's how you get rid of sin and gain righteousness. Right? The law says, keep the Sabbath. It says, don't steal. So you buckle down, right? And through sheer force of will, you do it. And Paul says, no, 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 that's all wrong. And, and it's incredibly dangerous. You, you can't will your way to righteousness because of what he's already said. You can't will your way to righteousness because your will is not free. Your will has been taken captive. You don't need to try harder. You need to be set free. And so you have to look inside of yourself and know, to, and know that there's nothing in there that you can turn to so that you begin to look outside of yourself. That's, that's, the, that's the movement of faith. Faith is looking outside of yourself for salvation. You don't look in. You look in and realize there's nothing there for me to really, you know, put confidence in. And you and begin to look outside and, and see the gift that, that God has given us in Jesus. Now, this is a huge part of my own personal struggle. Um, whenever I get caught in sin, which I'll be honest, doesn't happen very often. Wait, don't laugh, <laughs> because you're going to understand when I say this in just a minute. It doesn't happen very often, not because, not because I'm not a big sinner, but, but I make sure that it doesn't happen very often. See, you see what I'm saying? It doesn't happen very often because I make sure of it. I sin a bunch, but I don't get caught very often because I'm good at not getting caught. But when it happens, it's, it's crushing to me. And, and when it happens, my first impulse, I'll be honest with you, I should have it down by now, but I don't. My first impulse is not to look to Jesus. Here's the way this works in my life. When I get caught, one, I beat myself up for making the mistake, for being that stupid to do that, right? Two, I immediately begin to invest. I drop everything and invest all of my time and energy and creativity to figure out a strategy to make sure I never do it again. And then third, and only then, I can move past it and feel okay. See, because I can't stop looking to the law for righteousness. But the law was never meant to give righteousness. The law was meant to take away righteousness. That's, that's the great tragedy of people who look to the, to the law for righteousness is they're looking to, to, to the very thing that's meant to take away the thing they're looking, to, looking for. The law was never meant to give it, it was meant to take away it. And that's what the phrase, the law came in to increase the trespass. Verse 20, you see that? The law came in to increase the trespass. Uh, it, it, something very important in, in, to understand. It's a matter of life and death here, what Paul's saying right here. The grammar is very specific. It's the same word, the word came there is the same verb as in verse 12. Uh, so if you have a Bible, again, you ought to look back there. In verse 12, it says, sin came into the world. Verse 20 says the law came in. Same verb, but there's a different prefix in those two words. In verse 12, it, it came into. There was a disruption. Things were going along just fine. Sin came in and everything was changed. And it was never the same again. But in verse 20, when, when Paul talks about the law, the prefix is different. It, it's a prefix that means came alongside. The law came in alongside, in other words. It's very specific. It's very intentional what Paul's doing here. He says sin came in disrupting the world. And then the law came alongside of sin. 
The law was meant to go side by side. In other words, the law was never meant to be the disruption of sin, which, is, which was the disruption of, of paradise in Eden. The law came in alongside. It didn't disrupt the reign of sin and death. It came in as a part of it. The coming of Christ signaled the disruption of sin. Well, then what was the purpose of the law? Well, Paul says clearly, and this is going to be a huge part of what he has to cover over the next few chapters. Paul says it was to increase the trespass. The law didn't bring righteousness. Its function was to create in people a deeper sense of sin and condemnation so they would look outside of themselves to Christ. Does that make sense? That's the teaching, that we're all prone to look to ourselves for salvation, that there's a part of us, what the Bible calls the flesh, that wants to be the hero of our own story. And that's the part of us that has to die. And the law is the tool that God uses to put him in the grave. So preachers of two or 300 years ago would talk about what they called the law work. They believe that you can't be a Christian until you know you can't do it on your own. And so the law is there to do just that, to condemn, to show you your sin and drive you to Christ, that you have to first feel your need before you look to Jesus. That's the law's job, to show you you can't do it. The law says, don't murder, right? You might say, oh, I got that one. Oh, yeah? Well, are, are you ever angry? I mean, do you ever speak harshly? I mean, the catechisms of our theological tradition go to great length to exegete the Ten Commandments for this reason. According to Jesus, do not murder means more than just don't murder. It means, <laughs> this is in our catechism, this, this blew me away. The, so, to obey the command to not murder means that you be committed to a healthy lifestyle. That you forgive people when they hurt you. That you repay evil with good. That always you are meek and gentle and patient and kind and courteous to others. That you're never sinfully angry or envious. That you refuse to quarrel. That you use your words to build up and not to tear others down. Well, how are you doing with all that? Right? Don't talk to me about murder. Can you do all of that? Perfectly? All the time? Anyone dare to raise their hands? I didn't think so. And see, that's the point. What do you do when you realize you can't do what God demands? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember this story in the Gospels? And Jesus answered him, Keep the commandments. The man said, Which ones? And Jesus routed off a few of the Ten Commandments, which made the young man happy. He said, I've done all that. I'm good. And then Jesus said, well, one more thing. Go and sell your riches and give them to the poor. And you remember what the story says. It says the man went away sorrowful because he loved his wealth, because he couldn't do it. But he missed the point. Jesus, Jesus was doing something specific there. Jesus brought him to the very brink of faith. He took away his righteousness so that he would look outside of himself. But his mistake, the man's mistake, was to think that the way of, to eternal life was his doing. Jesus brought him to the end of his doing. Because that is the way to righteousness. What Paul calls the righteousness of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Righteousness from God. Alien righteousness, Luther said. It has to be something that's outside of me that comes in. So when you understand the way righteousness works, then you'll begin to be able to make some progress against the power of sin. What I mean by that is, is, is this tyranny of sin, the way you fight it is not by trying harder. If you try hard, 
if you try really hard, and if you see some success in your spiritual life, and if you think it's because you're such an amazing, disciplined, godly person, you're seeing success, you're actually going deeper into the reign of sin and death. Does that hit home? A nice, moral person who thinks God must love them because they're so nice and moral is the one locked away in the deepest dungeons of sin's keep. The whole key to overthrowing the reign of sin and death is to know that you don't have it in you, that you need a rescue. And the text says the purpose of the law was to increase our awareness and sense of sin. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm scared to say what I'm about to say. Isn't that fun when the preacher says that? Because it's going to be so misunderstood, but so ask me questions. But here's what I want to say. God wants you to feel like a big sinner. We try to, I mean, the whole strategy of the church these days is to keep people from feeling that way because nobody likes to feel that way. They won't come to your church if you make them feel that way. But the whole point of the law was to make you feel like a big sinner. God wants you to feel like a big sinner because until you know you're a big sinner, you won't get grace. It's when sin gets really big that verse 20, grace abounds. That's the key. Grace reigns through righteousness. And when you know, when you know that your standing with God has nothing to do with your moral performance, when you know that there is no sin in you that can eclipse God's love for you in Christ. That, thank you, Carter. That was the amen. You got it. I preached at Cypress Ridge last week. I'm going to tell you, they're way better than y'all are at that. They get it. Okay, you guys got some, you guys, sister church, they were tracking. So let me say it again. You don't have to say it. it's past now. It's too far, too late. But I just want to say it again. Okay. There is no sin in you that can eclipse God's love for you in Christ. It's true. There is not. And that's what brings the reigning power of grace into your life, to break the power of sin. When you know, when you know that no matter how big a sinner you might be, God's grace is always bigger. Now, what does that mean practically before we, we come to a close? A couple things. It means that the person who knows and by the word knows, I mean experiences. The person who knows and experiences the most about grace is the one who knows the most about their own sinfulness. The only way to get more grace is to see more of your sin. Conversely, if you have a hard time forgiving or showing grace to other people, either to yourself or to others, it's because you still think of yourself as a small sinner. The person who knows the most about grace is the one who knows the most about their sinfulness. And therefore, the better you are, uh, the worse you feel. Jack Miller used to say this, and it always stuck with me. The only way to gain ground on sin is to discover more and more of it in you, to unravel the layers. And so as you really start to get to good places of healing, as you start to actually get better, what happens is, is as, as you're getting better, you feel like you're getting worse. It is not that you're getting worse. You're just getting honest. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's not that you're figuring out that you really are a bigger sinner than you knew yourselves to be. You've always been that big a sinner. You just didn't know it. So you're just getting more a more accurate picture of what's always been true of you. And so what happens is, is this reign of grace then can have a disorienting effect. You feel worse, but you're getting better. You feel weak, but it's actually strength, right? It looks like defeat, but it's actually victory. 
And that's what we're after. So let's just transition as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Then what does grace reigning in a person's life really look like? I'm out of time. Uh, so I just want to introduce this. And this ne- the next few weeks is really going to fill it out. So come back. But look at verse 21 again. He says, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. So eternal life there. Eternal life is not a duration of life. It's a quality of life. We've really gotten this wrong. People in our culture don't understand this because Christians talk about it wrongly. Eternal kind of life is what that word means there. And and it's something we don't have to wait to heaven, wait until heaven to enjoy. We, if you, when you become a Christian, you enter into eternal life, even now, even here. And what that means is just a couple of things. It means a new, overflowing, motivational center of your life. Grace takes the reins. And the nature of grace is abundance. The, the language is, brings this out here. The reign of sin and death creates powerlessness and, and helplessness and despair. But grace brings overflowing joy and peace and, and hope over and over again. All throughout chapter 5, Paul says, verse 17, you see him saying, much more. Verse 20, all the more. It's more, more, more. I mean, Paul's just, just using this, he's throwing around these excessive words. I, the phrase in verse 20 there is, is so interesting. It's really one word where Paul says, all the much more. Do you see that? Verse 20, let's look at it. Let's look at it specifically. He says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's, it's, all of that is really one word, and it, it describes something that is overflowing. But as if that isn't enough, Paul takes that verb that, or that, that adjective that describes something that's overflowing and he adds a prefix. And the prefix he adds is hyper. So grace is hyper overflowing. Grace is, grace is hyper, you know, fullness. Sin and death, they steal, they take, they're harsh masters, but the reign of grace is characterized by generosity and largesse. Grace always gives. Lloyd-Jones says, there's nothing, listen to this quote, I just love, there's nothing parsimonious about grace, nothing partial or puny about it. It's very British. It gives and gives freely. Or John 1.16 says, from his fullness we receive grace upon grace. So this inner fullness of joy and peace and hope, which leads to a new power to reign in life. Verse 17, those who receive The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. The Bible says that in heaven we will sit on thrones and reign with Christ. But that verse says we don't have to wait until heaven. If you experience the abundance of grace, if you know righteousness is a gift, then what Paul says, and this is, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's the offer of Christianity. If you experience the abundance of grace, if you know that righteousness is a gift and not your doing, then you will begin to reign in life, Paul says. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No condemnation, no cowering in fear at the prospect of loss or even death. I mean, get the picture in your mind of the movies you've seen of people bound in chains, feet shuffling, heads down. That is not the Christian. Now, imagine the person with their head held high, meeting every obstacle, a spring in their step. That's, that's the Christian. Not because there's no struggle. Sin is there, but there is no condemnation. Hardship and suffering and even death are just as present, but not discouragement. 
not hopelessness, not fear. And that is, that is the reigning. That is what it means to reign in life. Not to be without those things, but to be with all of the courage and strength and hope and joy and peace you need in the midst of those things to triumph over them. And don't forget, Paul's clear in verse 21 to say that all of this, look at the very last phrase, all of this is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The foundation of the reign of grace is the self-giving love of the Savior. In him, there's grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what we celebrate this meal together too. And so let's pray as we prepare to come and eat this meal together this morning. Would you, would you just pray with me? Take a minute and just silently reflect. Our hearts, uh, Father, are so slow to believe these truths. We, we hear and, uh, and there's just something in us that, um, that, that kicks back and, and is not willing to believe that it could be, as you say it is in your word. Uh, we call that unbelief. And so we would pray, Father, we believe, but we need help with our unbelief. And so we thank you for the opportunity to come to this table now and to celebrate the grace upon grace that you have shown to us in the giving of your son, the Lord Jesus, to die. Such radical generosity and love is the sign of not only the way you live and, and, and towards us and love us, but the very essence of who you are, that love is who you are. It's even more than what you do. It's, it's who you are. It's, it's, the very, it's the very fountain of all reality in the universe. And you have made a way. You have, you have come to rescue us from the tyranny of sin and death. You have broken our chains. You have ripped open the prison. And you have taken uh, and set the captives free. And that is what we celebrate. And so as we do come in the places where our hearts are still imprisoned, in fear, in condemnation, would you set us loose that we might joyfully, reverently, enthusiastically praise and adore you because that would be something that would bring you much glory and that's what we desire and so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just can't get over the call from the scriptures this morning for us to, to be those so empowered by the Spirit uh, and so emboldened by grace that we would go out reigning in life. Don't you want that? Uh, not shuffling our feet, but with a spring in our step. And so it all, it all starts with knowing the truth of this benediction, that you go, you don't just go, you're, you're sent. Uh, that the Father is sending you with the promise of his presence and the promise of his spirit, the promise of giving you everything you need, not just to make it through life, but to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so receive these words. I may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.